I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and from many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, we got an amazing dude here today and Mark Randolph. Mark Randolph, I mean, this, this is going to be just awesome to listen to. Mark is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, advisor, and investor. Mark was co-founder of Netflix, serving as their, their founding CEO, as the executive producer of their website, and as a member of the board of directors. Although best known for starting Netflix, a lot, lot more here about Mark that uh, you're going to find out. Mark's career as an entrepreneur spans more than four decades. He's founded or co-founded more than a half dozen other successful startups, mentored rising entrepreneurs including the co-founders of Looker Data, which was recently sold to Google for $2.6 billion. Mark, like many of our Ditch Digger CEOs, is an awesome giver. This guy lives to give. He's a frequent speaker at industry events, works extensively with young entrepreneurial programs, sits on the board of environmental advocacy group 1% for the planet, and chairs the National Outdoor Leadership School Board of Trustees. What, a, what an awesome guy. I'm ex so excited to have, have Mark with us today. Thank you for listening and uh, get ready for a great podcast. Think about you growing up, you always think about what may have influenced you, but you're looking at it backwards. So I'm picking out these little incidents that said maybe that shaped me, but pretty much for as long as I can remember, I've always been intrigued by doing something that was different or do, doing something new about seeing a hole and realizing I just wanted to fill it. Um, and part of that could be that I, in my family was pretty, well, I was going to say risk tolerant, maybe risk encouraging. Mm -hmm. I used to do a lot of outdoor stuff and I remember I would come home and say, and, and say, I, I, I wanted to try and figure out how to repel. So I, put a rope up in a tree and kept propelling <laughs> down from a tree branch. And rather than my, my parents thinking I was crazy and discouraging me, we decided and we all run outside and they'd watch me repel from a tree. 
ridiculously crazy. But it kind of, it, it, getting that encouragement early on, I think really kind of made me comfortable with the inherent risk taking that sure. when you begin doing it uh, at a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. you know, but listen, even, you know, I was always the person who was, uh, when I was little, was out uh, selling things door to door. Or when I was in middle school, starting up my own little clubs. Or in high school, starting publications. Or in college, trying to start clubs. I mean, I just liked a whole process of building something that wasn't there before. And sure. when you've been doing that for ever since you were a little kid, it seems natural that when you finally get to the point where you've actually got to earn a living at something, you'd stick to the one thing you you know. Sure. Now think about that. Think about the way, and, and I, we see this so much, Mark, it's unbelievable. The people that have been the most successful in their lives and they're, when they're your age, years of my age and, and younger and older, um, so often they were able to do something at a young age to really shape their, their excitement and passion for, for creating a product, right, or serving a customer at a young age. And man, I, 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 it bothers me sometimes when I think about kids today and they, they don't have the ability to do that. Even if they want to, I wouldn't say they don't have, there's, there's, there's options for sure, but nothing like there was when we were kids, right? We can go mow, mow our neighbor's lawns and, and get paid and they didn't worry about all the liability tie, tied to that, right? Or <laughs> deliver newspapers or whatever. Today, it's not as accessible, right? Well, actually, I'm, I, I'll, I'll argue with you. I'd say it's even more accessible now than it was back then. You know, back then, if you and I wanted to start a business and make some extra money, we had to go find a neighbor's lawn to mow. Or we had to go door to door selling American seeds, which was pretty exploitive at the time. But listen, it taught me how to go door to door and pitch to people. But anyway, mm -hmm. nowadays, if someone wants to do that, they have the internet available. I mean, they can go, they can put up a storefront on eBay. They can uh -huh. put up a little website in Squarespace in about 15 minutes. Um, you can take your idea and make something of it. Look at all these entrepreneurs who are doing YouTube. Uh, and uh -huh. money at that. Look at all the people who are making money at gaming. I mean, I think in some ways, if someone now has a passion, it's much easier to monetize it. And I think that actually bodes well for what the future of. Uh, okay. All right. So you got, you got, like. you got me, man. But remember my mind's in the dirty businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So dirty business, not so much opportunity, but you're right about that. And I think about technology today and where, you, where it could take you by, you know, by interest standards, you're right. There is a lot of opportunity in there. But yeah, it, but it's always been hard. Listen, if you wanted to start a roofing business back when you were 16, that was tough. I mean, you, you could buy a striping machine and go around and, and pitch people to right. their parking lot. And I, I see young people around here. A good friend of mine actually did that. So, you know, I think it's, it's always possible. It's a mindset thing. You know, uh -huh. In fact, one of the things that I, I, I certainly am spending most of my time doing, and I gather you're doing the same thing, is just trying to push people to start. You know, Absolutely. Take that idea and, and dispel that whole myth that I can't do anything until I have an MBA or until I graduate college or until I find a bullshit. You know, if, if you have an idea, get out and start and try it and do it. And uh, you find the barriers are a lot lower than you imagine. hundred percent. And, and you think about it, like you mentioned this a bunch when I, I listen to your, your, your speeches and stuff like that, but the, the, the tolerance of risk to risk is a big thing, right? But then, but then the, the realization that you're going to fail, man, you're going to fail, get used to it, get, you're, get, you know, get kicked in the teeth a few times. It's going to happen over and over again. And, and, and look at it as a, as a, as a badge of honor instead of, oh man, I lost, right? Uh, I got, you know, I got my ass, you know, look, look at it as a badge of honor. And, and if you can, if you can get used to failing often and fast and hopefully not too expensively, right? Eventually, you know, good things happen, right? 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who kind of embraces the whole failure porn thing because it, it, it's, it, the, the day, you know, let's reframe it a little bit. The danger is that people are believing that the reason you do these things is to be successful or to succeed or to get it right. And yeah, if you do that, you, there's one path, to, to, to a couple paths to that and a hundred paths that lead away from that, which are the failure paths. But mm-hmm. I've always framed it as, these are all voyages of discovery. What you're trying to do is, is to learn, to try something. I mean, you look at even someone like Lewis and Clark, you know, it isn't like they had this goal. They were going, I don't know where the hell this is going. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, each day if they set out and go, this has to be here, yeah, it's going to be a failure. But they go, listen, I'm just going to figure it out. We're going to see what we encounter. We're going to figure out a way around it. And interesting things will come from it. We're going to discover things we didn't even know we were looking for. And I think for people who start businesses, it it has to be the same thing. The the failure thing happens multiple times. Like you said, multiple times a day. But it's not failure. It's just learning. Right. And that's just part of it. And if you only try things that you know are going to be successful, you'll never try anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if, and, and if you, if you're, if you're afraid of, but if you're afraid of failure and you, and you don't get started until something you think is per is perfect. Right. And I, I yeah. see that too often too. You don't get started. And, and you know, here you got to get yeah. started. You, yeah. You're right. You, 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 what's, the, what's the expression, you know, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You, 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 you sloppy, you know, my byword is me- messy, fast. Sure. 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 It's <laughs> time polishing a turd, as we used to say. Yeah, I like it. In the software awesome. business. Okay, so 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 uh, you you got you know you 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 graduated high school. Where'd you go to college? So I went to school in upstate New York at a college called Hamilton College, uh, and you know back when you picked a college, then uh, you, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't do all the research. I didn't have the U.S. News and World Report and stats and videos. You just kind of pick the best college you get into, and you go there. Um, and then, of course, once you're in school and you finally realize, oh, boy, I didn't know anything about what I was getting into. Uh-huh. The cool thing about where I ended up going to school, there was a couple things. The big win for me was that it was a liberal arts school. So uh, the focus there was not on career prep. The focus there was on basically learning how to think, hmm. you know, how to write, how to speak, how to make and defend an argument, how to detect bullshit, how to... Uh, call people on it, you know, how to evaluate sources, all this stuff, which didn't necessarily prepare me for anything specific, but in other ways, prepared me for everything. Right. The career that I went into, you know, that it didn't exist back when I was going to college. I couldn't have taken courses in that stuff. But the things I learned there, which is how to write and how to speak, um, I use every single day. Absolutely. And that was a huge, uh, huge lucky break. And, and it was also a place, you know, I always tell people that I, I, ma- I majored in, actually, I majored in geology, of all things. But okay. what I considered I majored in was extracurricular. And people, when I say that, young people laugh, thinking I mean that I partied the whole time. But what, what I mean is that I majored in starting things. You know, I launched, we launched a humor, launched a humor magazine there. I, I started up the outing club. I was, a, I mean, I had this chance to put all my energy into building things, but do it in this unbelievably supportive framework where I had three meals a day and a room and a dorm room to stay in. Right. 
and a little bit of seed money from the student council um, <laughs> that allowed me to practice this art of, uh, of building. Right, start, start uh, I, ups. I, I knew I wouldn't be a geology major. I didn't want to go off and work in the oil fields or something like that. It was a BA anyway. So uh, it was more this chance to practice. And what was that? Tell us about that again. What was it? What did you build there? You said uh, it was a journal. Uh, you said, what, what was that product? Oh, no, it wasn't a product. It was just me, you know, it was me being a chance to start things and build things and try things. Um, none of which, of course, were consequential. But again, mm -hmm. that's kind of the point is that there wasn't this pressure to do something that had to be successful. Mm -hmm. There's these choices that you got to play with these things that everyone in a startup does. Like, for example, you go, I'm going to start a magazine, okay? There's no, mag there's no humor magazine on this campus, and there should be. Um, but you can't do it yourself. So you've got to begin bringing people around to your vision. You've got to convince them to join you on this crazy, irrational quest. Uh, you have to divide up the responsibility. You have to take people, who, in this case, who have schoolwork to do and have homework and have classes and convince them that this is something they should allocate their time to. Creating <laughs> this embraceive uh, environment. You're not even paying people. I mean, it's this tremendous practice for what I eventually would do for a living later on, which is recruit people to leave their mm -hmm. jobs with great benefits and come to work for a company with a negative upside down balance sheet. There <laughs> are no prospects. I mean, the, it, and I, these are great intro things. Talking about these practicing is the key. Yeah. Uh, whole, we talked earlier, I can tie these threads together now. You can, you've catched me my most caffeinated, by the way. I'll apologize. I'm, <laughs> awesome. We love it. You know, caffeine levels are just peaking right now. That's what we want. Uh, but, you know, you tie these threads together about failing and trying. But if, you, if the first chance you've ever had to demonstrate leadership is when you're in a company, you know, that you're, not, you're not really given real leadership. Yeah. Um, but if you take the opportunity to demonstrate leadership at a point when the stakes are low, yeah, you can totally screw up on recruiting someone. And fine, then you go recruit someone else. Yeah. You know, if you blow the $50 the student council gave you in something, well, it's traumatic at the time, but fundamentally, it doesn't put a big black mark on your record. Right, right. You just get a chance to, to try things to screw up somewhere safe. And, and that's what I push people to do is, screw up now yeah and, and mark i think it's interesting that your parents actually encouraged the risk for you uh almost to a point where it provided you happiness and personally the way that i was raised was that uh i was told to pursue whatever makes me happy uh and that's a pretty abstract thought to think about <laughs> but uh i that's what i have continued to live to up to the best of my ability today uh, so i guess i'm curious along that line that throughout the way uh, I, there's been other mentors that I've had that I'm extremely grateful for, but I'd be interested outside of your parents, like who also, let's say from the age of 20 to earlier in your life, uh, also played an influential role for you and in mentoring you to be where you're at today. You know, I, I'm sure there was a, a ton of people along the way who were kind of really helpful. Uh, and I'll, 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 I'm going to name a name and then I'll, but I'm going to move on. It, I mean, probably the person who was my middle school outing club uh, leader huh. probably set me on a course more significantly than any, anybody else has. 
But this was not necessarily about a business preparation thing, although it was, and I can talk about that later, but how the outdoors prepared me for that. But it helped me find what my happy place is in life. Um, and that's, that is a valuable thing. Hmm. Your parents can say, do what makes you happy, but then they don't really necessarily tell you how to discover what that is. You know, they'll give you violin lessons if you ask for it, or, you know, send you to soccer camp. But some the people who are influential who, who nurture a, an early interest and help you convert that into a passion which lasts forever. But, you know, in terms of more professional mentorship, I've been really lucky and that I've had this chance to work um, with three brilliant entrepreneurs at various points in my life. And that was hugely influential. Um, you know, the, the second, probably my second real job just happened to be with a guy who was a serial entrepreneur. And I didn't pick him. It just was the job that I got hired for. But I got to watch how this person made decisions. I got to watch the way they managed their business and their people and the way they took risks and the way, and it was remarkable because this was not reading. This was not looking, looking at blog posts or watching videos or taking classes. This was literally just sitting there watching and seeing how someone made a decision. And then maybe even going out to lunch with a person and go, what, why did you do that? Or having them sit me down and say, Mark, you're about to spend this on this, and that's a mistake. Let me explain to you why, and here's what we're going to do instead. And you, of course, being a, you know, a know-it-all, you'd argue. And then if you're reasonably introspective, you'd go back and go, well, maybe, God, maybe he's right. <laughs> um, and I'll give you a specific example here. This is a, the, the, the gentleman was a guy named uh, Peter Godfrey who, who ran a, um, a series of mail order companies. And uh, I met him because he hired me to do uh, circulation, you know, subscription business for a magazine we were starting. You know, one of my, probably my second startup. Um, but then we, we sold that magazine and he, he said, let's get into the computer mail order business. And he goes, Mark, get us going. So all of a sudden now I was in charge. Um, and I was, I was, this is way back when, when if you wanted to do anything, you had to do it yourself. And so we had to figure out how to do the fulfillment, how to take orders. And I was pricing out the computer mini mainframes you had to buy to take orders. And they were happy. What, what, year, what year was this about, Mark? This is probably 1983. Wow. 84, something like that. Yeah, this is back in the you know early days. But to take orders, then you had to buy an IBM mini mainframe. It might have cost half a million dollars to run the software to process orders. Kind of crazy, funny right. to think about. And um, uh, and I was you know evaluating this, and I was going, I don't know how much margin we might have on an order that we could use to spend on order processing. And then Peter said, "You are out of your mind. What? Why are you spending all this money on this? We're just getting started." And they go, well, we need to get to a point where it only costs us a couple dollars in order to process the order. And he goes, no, you're crazy. Let's just hire a contract fulfillment company. And I go, I looked into that, and that's $40. They're asking $30 an order, whatever the number was. That's like twice what our margin is in these products. And he said, it doesn't make a difference. This does not need to be repeatable. It does not need to be scalable. This is the cost of finding out if our business is actually viable or not. Right. 
And you're going to find out that if it's not viable, fine, you spent $10,000. But if it's not viable and you spent half a million, now that's not recoverable. Right. And wow, that just, this light bulb went off. Absolutely. It's something that became probably one of the most profound pieces of knowledge that I've used ever since, is that the way to try things does not need to be repeatable or scalable or even make any economic sense. It really is what's the quickest and easiest and cheapest way to try something. Mm-hmm. MVP, minimal. Great point. Even, even more, and we can talk more about that too, even, even crappier than an MVP. Yeah. A, a sub-viable product. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is, well, it, it, but one that, dent, that picks out the one piece you're genuinely curious about and helps you inform your judgment um, about what might work and what might not work. Yeah. But in terms of a mentor, he was, he was huge. Another guy was Philippe Kahn, who I was fortunate to work at when I first came out to Silicon Valley, who was a crazy man, but a genius. And he'd be in front of, you know, a group of these, I was an executive of his, and he'd be a group, this big group of us, and he'd say, gosh, you guys don't see it, you have to do this. And I'd go, oh my gosh, of course I was right. And him and I would connect, and we'd realize that no one else, very few people in the room were, were following. He just had this ability to leap, but he taught me that you could make those leaps. So, I mean, these are the, and and you watch someone do it over again and see it work. And if he hadn't been in the room and I'd proposed those things, everybody would have shot them down. You know, it it triggered, new ideas trigger an immune response in in an organization. Sure. And you need to have the person with the courage and conviction to recognize that nobody knows anything. (laughs) Most people are going to disagree. That's what makes these new ideas. So, Leap taught me that. And of course, I won't even go into it in detail, but of course, Reed Hastings, having a chance to work with him for, uh, you know, seven years, that was the uh, treat of a lifetime. Where, where's your work? What company was that you worked with him at? Uh, Reed? Oh, a little company. You may have heard of it. Netflix? Oh, yeah. That was the company. Oh, yeah. That's where you worked. Yeah, with. Did, yeah. Didn't you work with him somewhere before that too or no? Yeah, that's true. We worked for about, uh, Reed purchased a little startup that myself and two friends were doing. Uh, and he bought us pre, before we launched our product, we were still in beta. And there, there was about maybe a dozen of us in the company. And the other 11 of those guys all went into the basement to be a business unit in Reed's company. Um, and <laughs> grabbed me and made me the VP of marketing for this company. So I went from being head of product and marketing for this little 12 person tech company. And all of a sudden overnight, I was doing marketing for this multi-thousand person international company. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. A little bit of a shock. Uh, but I did get six months of being able to uh, get to know Reed really well. We both lived in the same town. And Indeed. we commute, commute back and forth to work every day. So I got a chance to see how he thought and became good friends with him. And in some ways, that kind of set the stage for when both of us uh, lost our jobs. Um, yeah. <laughs> Both of us turned to each other and said, "Maybe we should do something else." And that was okay, and that was what year about? Is that in the mid '90s or late '90s? Or what was that? Yeah, that was 1996. Was when is that right? '96 when uh, our little startup was acquired by Reed's company that he had founded called Pure Atria. Uh, and then 1997 when Pure Atria was in itself acquired. 
And Reed and I found ourselves being made redundant, as they euphemistically put it. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, so that was spring of 1997, where I said, all right, this happens. This is great. I'm going to start another company. And Reed uh, said, well, I don't really want to start another company because he at the time wanted to go change the world of education. He goes, I'm going to go to grad school, but I kind of want to stay involved in the startup scene. So how about this? I'll be the angel. Uh, you start the company and let's just come up with an idea that we both think is uh, compelling. Amazing. Yeah, it is. And anyhow, little things, uh, how fate kind of is. Yeah. Are, now, are you still engaged in uh, like on the board of Netflix or something anything like that or no? No, and I've been going for a long time. Uh -huh. So, you know, we start, 1997 was in Reed and I would have our carpools, we brainstorm crazy ideas. Uh, we launched the company in April of 1998, coming up on 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I stayed there through about 2003. Okay. Uh, and since then, I've, uh, I've been disengaged. I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of people there. Reed and I are still social. Did you keep, keep did you keep some stock there, dude? You that's that stock is amazing right now, isn't it? I know. It's like the uh, <laughs> awesome. It's like the ever ever full bucket. Every yeah. so often, you know, the stock price goes up, and I go, I really need to diversify this, so I'll sell half of it. And then <laughs> uh, I don't know. A year later, it's back to the level it was before. So it's yeah. kind of this magic uh, magic treat. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it, 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 we're watching the stock now. But nowadays, this, this unfortunate, this crazy virus, this terrible virus, right? Amazing, but of course, right? People love Netflix, and uh, you got to be so proud of that. They love Netflix, and you're, they're buying more and more of it, right? It's awesome. Well, it's, it's funny you say being proud of it because it's all. It's I mean, you know, certainly I'm really proud of having uh, started this company, which has become a you know a worldwide phenomenon. But you know, especially now during the whole COVID nineteen thing, I watch television and you see these unbelievably heroic people. Yeah. going to work on horrendous conditions and saving lives and dedicating themselves. And I kind of say, okay, great. My big accomplishment in life is starting a company to help people spend more time in front of a screen. <laughs> but there's a, a silver lining to it, which is, of course, I mean, now, you know, people do, I won't say depend on it, but it certainly is a great way for people to have a place they can well, chill. I don't know if I can use absolutely, absolutely. I mean, think about people that that you know that don't. If they didn't have it, that's one last thing they have to look forward to. And, and right now is the time where people will get depressed, right, in, in their in their small apartment or place they live in or whatever. Right, get depressed, and and Netflix has got to be something that gives some people some hope that they wouldn't have otherwise. So you know, don't minimize the value of that. I mean, I know you don't, but boy, it's that's a really cool thing to be part of. So it's it's kind of it still blows my mind to look at what Netflix has uh, has turned into, considering its ridiculously humble beginnings. Yeah, no doubt. And, and we we've had uh, we had uh, one of the early founders of Get a Movie that turned into you know some partnership with McDonald's and Redbox, and and eventually you were you were a part of that as well. Um, uh, Bijou uh, was a, is a uh, friend, friend of mine that was one of the three young guys that started to get a movie that then uh, partnered with McDonald's when they had Redbox that turned into the movie business, right? Yeah. But, uh, and then I'm also very good friends with uh, uh, the Heisinga family in the Chicagoland area. And what great people they are, and you dirty rats. If you didn't, uh, between you guys, you didn't uh, you know, hurt them a lot, right? Not that right. They're, they're, they're okay, I think, still. But, but that was a big hit, right? When you, uh, you know, when you took down Blockbuster, I'm sure that, you know, there's a moment that uh, you got to look back and say, well, you know, you could have, you could have succumbed to them, and they, they, they would have, 
you know, thought differently, they would have probably bought you next to nothing and uh, they'd still be around in this, this market that Netflix, Netflix has done so well in, right? Well, that's a really interesting, uh, one of those, if we did a DVD which had multiple endings, that would be an interesting one to play out. Because I really do wonder, uh, you know, of course the story you're alluding to is that way back in, uh, I guess, 2000, uh, you know, we were kind of on the ropes and went to, and went to pitch ourselves yeah. uh, for Blockbuster to buy us. And they more or less could, could have bought us for $50 million and they laughed at us. And, but I wonder, had they bought us, what would have happened? And I sincerely wonder whether or not they would have made the transition, whether they would have had what it requires to transition their business from that to, to streaming in the way that Netflix did. Sure, were they, were they embraced it or would they have killed it, right? I well, mean, you know, listen, there's a fundamental thing which not just Blockbuster did, but that most, I'm almost going to say every large company struggles with, is that you have this big business established, it's 99% of your revenue, and then you see this glimmer of the next new thing coming. You know, and the C-suite guys recognize this. They know this is the future, and they see what they probably should do, but it's going to impact their existing line of business. Sure. And they either lack the courage or the vision or the strength or the ability to respond. And, Absolutely. You know, and one of the reasons that Netflix got the toehold it did is that Blockbuster saw it. I mean, they knew that eventually people would be, uh, you know, using the internet for, for movies and they wouldn't even mm -hmm. block the stores as frequently. But they were going, no, we have, we have $6 billion a year flowing through our stores. And we're supposed to what, take our very best uh, engineers and put them on this web business that <laughs> do $5 million? That's crazy. And, yeah, yeah. and they didn't put their A-team on it for years and years and years. And by the time they finally realized, wow, this is going to take us down if we don't respond, it was almost too late. And isn't that, isn't that, that's, that's the beauty of startups, right? I mean, I, I, you know, for us, I, I've, learned, I've learned this probably for the last, well, I, know, I guess, 15, 16 years I've been doing this, paying out businesses out of our existing because our businesses get to a certain point and they're, they get a little bit complacent. I mean, you know, we, we strive to be leaders of what we do and these businesses we're in and we get to 50, 60 million in sales. They, 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 in our industry, those are very big numbers, right? When you're talking about mom and pops you're competing with across the country. And, and so our team gets a little bit uh, complacent and, and, and I think it's very common. And so we have a new idea that comes up and it, and it could be a division within our business, but as a division, I, I believe they, I don't believe they press hard enough, fast enough. And so when we spin them out and they become their own entities, we've seen that, that, that entity with that, that small uh, passionate leader and, the, and those, and that team of five or six to start, right. Really get engaged as, as partners in the business and, and motivated to, to kick ass, right? And so, again, I'm confident that as startups, you have way more crea creativity that goes on and, and, and less fear of the failure. And, and I, I believe that, you know, that's what I'm going to continue to do. I'm going to continue to spin out these little businesses because it's so much fun to watch these partners just kick ass and think differently, you know? Yeah, it's a funny thing you said, when you, you said, and less fear of failure. But I would argue the reason why it works to spin them out is there's more fear of failure. Well, that's, that's true. Well, that's not true, too. It's the mix. When you're in the mothership, it's like, oh, it doesn't work, whatever. They'll put me on some other project. When you go, no, man, you're, you're on your own here. If you screw yeah. this up, you're out of business. 
There's yeah. nothing that puts a lights of fire under your ass, which realizing that you're uh, everything's at stake unless you get this right. Sure, but they, but they don't have like the the, the the executive team, you know, breathing down their necks, right? Yeah. They've got a lot more freedom. They've got risk, like you're saying, but but they they've got more freedom and they feel like they own it more, right? Compared to being a, a, a you know maybe a VP in the business with not a lot of ups, not as much upside and not as much downside. So I, I think, like I said, it's so much fun to watch. So, so mentoring these, these startups for you, it's got to be a blast, right? I know you're, 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 I do some of this and I know you're doing this. It's such a blast to mentor these startups when you can give them, you know, share experiences with them, to make them think differently, right? Can you well, tell us about that? I mean, I'm glad that you're actually framing it that way because, you know, mentoring for me is not entirely altruistic. You know, uh, it, 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 there's a lot in it for me too. And, you know, because you know, Netflix was my sixth startup. So I, you know, I've been doing it for 40, you know, going almost 40 years. And so mm-hmm. when Netflix ended, not ended, when I left Netflix, um, I didn't want to hang it up of being an entrepreneur. But at the same time, you know, I was now almost 45. And, and so I was going, I'm not sure I want to do another seven by 24 startup of my own again. But you know, I need that fix. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't go cold turkey on it. And so really for me, mentoring was my methadone, my, my, my way to get that, that rush of being part of a startup, but without having to be, you know, seven by 24 anymore. Sure. You know, at at Netflix was kind of interesting, you know, by by 2003, you know, Netflix had now gone public you know, we now had finally cracked the code of how to run the DVD by mail business in a way that actually mm-hmm. made money. Uh, we had this ability to hire unbelievably good people. And it, it kind of was different for me then. You know, one of the things I've kind of realized is that I'm a, I, what I really love, you know, is early stage stuff. I love that problem solving mode. I love the fact there's always a hundred things on fire and the skill mm-hmm. is to pick the two or three and focus on them relentlessly. It's yeah. more with less. And, and so by 2003, even though I still loved that company, loved Netflix, it, I didn't necessarily enjoy the things I was doing anymore. Oh, sure. And so realizing, and more importantly, I wasn't very good at it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big company guy. I'm a small company guy. And so leaving Netflix was my chance to actually do the thing that I love doing. And it turned out that the model that worked for me was mentoring. You know, because the thing that I've always loved, even from the very beginning, was that feeling where you're sitting around the table with the really smart people solving these really interesting puzzles. Mm -hmm. And now as a mentor, I get to do that. I get to come in and sit down with these really smart people and help them solve really interesting puzzles with the huge benefit that I get to go home at five o'clock. <laughs> they have to stay up all night um, <laughs> trying to uh, trying to solve the problem. So it's been it's been remarkable, and it drags you know I'm I'm 61, and so it this drags me into new things. It keeps me current, uh, not just on technology, which is fun in and of itself. But, you know, how are companies marketing themselves? How are they communicating with customers? How are these new tools being used? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's the, and I just love getting well, a chance to work with smart, young people. 
Well, you've got this, you, you know, you, you in my space and, uh, you know, different than your space, but we've got these shared experiences, right, that we've got in our, in our past that we can pull them out anytime and say, hey, well, let me tell you about an experience I've had. And, and you, can make, you can make your own decision, but here's an experience I had, right? And in telling those experiences, you know you're going to give some lesson that they're going to take something from it, right? You're, you're not pressured that they, they have to think your way. You're not pressured that they have to make the same decision you even made, right? But it's so much fun when, when they, they can think about the, 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 the good or the bad experience you went through and they make their own decision. And, and that, that's, you know, you've got such a vast amount of cool experiences that if you share those experiences with people in the, in the moment, man, they're going to they're take and, and get so much value out of it. And, and I, I find that on a daily basis that when I'm mentoring, that's what I get, right? I, I get this, this great feeling that, man, they, they, they learned something from that, good or bad. And, and they went on their own. They made the decision that was right or wrong that will affect their, their, their future, hopefully positively. Right. So it's really fun when, when we get, you know, get to be our age and you can look back and, and say, let me think about an experience. Let me tell you about an experience I had. Right. And I, I used to think when I when I was mentoring, when I look for mentorship in my 20s and 30s and we didn't call it mentorship. I was like, I, there's somebody successful. I say, hey, man, I want to sponge off you. You've got a nice car, a nice house. And I, I want to sponge off you. Right. And they'd say, eh, they didn't feel too good to them. But they they, they like me and say, yeah, I can I can share. I can I can talk to you about business or whatever. And so often I would expect them to tell me what the hell do, right? And, and eventually, you know, it took me into my probably mid-30s, late-30s before I realized that mentorship isn't telling anybody what to do. It's, it's 100% sharing experiences. And, and if you're telling people what to do, you're, you're, you're not, it's not right because you actually have some liability with that too, right? If they, they do what you tell them and it's wrong, what are they going to feel like? And what do you feel like when it happens, right? So again, mentorship is so it's 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 easy in my opinion that you i mean it's it, if you put work into it it's 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 and you have fun with it it's maybe it's not easy but it, it can be very easy if you love doing it and so i can't imagine the value you bring to the table for anybody you share experiences with it's got to be awesome so but thanks for doing that well what's really what's really cool about doing mentorship or more importantly working with lots and lots of companies is it puts everything it'll let you put things into perspective I mentioned that over 40 years, I did seven companies, okay? And, you know, a bunch of them were pretty successful, but you never really know which of the things you did worked or which ones were wrong, but succeeded in spite of themselves. You, how much, you know, and you begin to realize how much of it's luck. And as you begin to get out and you begin to work with lots of companies, you begin to see the patterns emerging. Sure. The really interesting thing for me over the last 15 years of working with by now, probably hundreds of early stage entrepreneurs and, you know, hearing countless pitches, uh, you know, as kind of an angel investor is that you begin to see what the common denominators are for early stage success. Sure. It's not something you can say, here's what to do. These are approaches which are shared by a lot of successful companies. And then you can look back at your own career and go, oh, I can see how this thing I did totally inadvertently, totally without knowing what I was doing, was wow, is that the right thing at the right time in the right place? Yeah. Um, and it's been fantastic to kind of have this chance to look back and go, not just, wow, I did some great smart things, but more importantly to look back, especially at Netflix and go, oh my God, how lucky were we? Yeah, yeah. All these things broke right for us that had they gone a different direction, it would be a very different story right now. And how, how much learning do you figure, I mean, do you feel like you get out of mentorship and, men, you know, mentoring others? Um, when, you know, when you look, look at what you, the, what you gain out of it, tell me about that. 
Some people don't look at it that way, right? I've got a different model. Um, you know, so part of, part of my whole thing is I don't do a lot of um, detailed planning because I realize almost all planning is worthless because as soon as you start, the world's different than you expected. And all this planning is wasted. And so, the, so when I said I'd kind of like to do some mentoring as a way to perhaps be a next chapter in my life, I didn't like think too much about it. I just plunged in and go, I'm going to learn more from doing it. And I worked with a bunch of companies and made a huge number of mistakes. And the, one of the biggest ones was being an advisor, which is the biggest waste of time. Um, <laughs> Because you come in and you pontificate for an hour and you're basically going entirely on pattern recognition and you don't really understand the problem. And, and as you pointed out, huge danger in giving people advice which you don't really understand. Um, and so I've gone, I took about three years for me to iterate to the model which I've now used for the last dozen, which is I've recognized that if I really want to get something out of this mentoring relationship, it has to be real. I have to understand the problem well enough to genuinely give good advice. I've got to know the product, I've got to know the category, I've got to know the competition. I have to know not only the CEO or the, the partners, I've got to know the employees. And that takes a big investment. Yeah. It means I can only do a handful. So sure. I do three or sometimes four at a time, but I put a lot of time into them, enough to understand them. But the reason I do that is not necessarily, uh, it's out of the goodness of my heart. It's because now I get to really be part of this team. We get to collectively truly solve this problem. And I'm back to getting that thing I talked about before, which is getting to sit down and really solve cool problems with people. And that's what, that's, that's the fix that I, that I want and that I need. And, and the interesting thing, and I'm sure you probably see the same thing is at least in the early stage stuff. I love the early stage stuff. I'm not a late stage entrepreneur, but at the beginning, two thirds of what your mentoring is for me anyway, is the emotional mentoring of people. Yeah. It's not, is my go-to-market strategy right, or should I do debt or equity, or, you know, that, that, yes, there's that. But more of it is, oh, I'm having a real issue with my co-founder. Or, oh my God, how do you keep balance? My, my wife is going nuts because I'm at the office all the time. Or, how mm -hmm. do I have to lay this person off who has worked for me for three years, and, but she's, she's not the right person for the, the next, I mean, boy, those are the things that sure. a founder struggles with they never anticipated they'd struggle with. They may have come out of business school prepared to understand the balance sheet and do the market analysis, but they never thought they'd have to be going through some of these emotional struggles that uh, a founder does. Right. Um, sure. And it's one of the things I can give people this reassurance is everyone goes through this and here's a way perhaps to think about approaching it. Yeah, awesome. A little bit more intangible. Uh, in that Absolutely. Regard. Absolutely. Intangible, but critical. Right. And, and so to me, I think one of the biggest correlations to success oftentimes comes back to the culture and the way that the leadership team from origination and inception of the idea has the ability to execute 
and actually implement that culture so that it, it legacy that lasts. And I was fortunate that I was able to watch Jeff Weiner lead LinkedIn and the way that he leads is through compassionate leadership and the decisions that are made by leadership team is rooted in culture and values. And there's a reason why they're making those decisions because it's in the best interest of LinkedIn's members, which is why they're a members first organization. Um, it, so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, if you have uh, a framework or a methodology that you use when it comes to developing a sense of culture from day one, all the way through to the, I guess the inner workings as you scale. Well, we could spend another hour and a half or a hundred and a half hours yeah. uh, just talking about culture. Cause I am, I am really passionate about, about that as well. But the fundamental tenet that I believe is the key to culture is recognizing that culture is not what you say. Culture is not what you do. Your little culture deck doesn't mean anything. Uh, your little 10 culture points that you post in every in the break room is bullshit. Uh, you know, what we carve in your cornerstone doesn't count. The only thing that counts is how you act. And as anyone who has children quickly understands, people pay attention to what you do. They don't pay attention to what you say. And you brought up an interesting point too, which is that culture is not something that you create. You sit down and brainstorm what it should be. Culture usually springs organically from the behavior of the founders. How do they treat each other? How do they treat early decisions? How do they treat customers? How do they act? That's what culture is. And so early on, and again, this is not something that I did because I learned it in school. It just kind of came naturally. Early on, I was extremely transparent about what I believed and I would do those things. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. Um, I, I, you know, I said, you know, Netflix was my sixth company and early on in my life, in my, I was in my thirties, I vowed that I was not, I was going to keep my family together, that I would not be an entrepreneur on their sixth company, but also on their sixth wife that my kids would grow up knowing me and hopefully liking me. But I realized that that therefore could not be something that I made as something I fit in around the other obligations. So from early on, my wife and I had this thing where every Tuesday uh, at five o'clock, I would leave the office and we would do a date night, get a sitter and have this time to stay connected to my best friend. And I was serious about it. You know, if, uh, if there was a huge crisis, well, damn it, we're going to settle it by five. You got to talk to me desperately. Well, let's do it on the way to the car. But here's the cool thing that happened. Um, after doing this for six or eight weeks, pretty soon people get the message and they stop asking. They resolve the crisis on their own. And even better, they begin taking their own date nights on Tuesday night because they know there's not going to be a meeting called at eight o'clock. And so one of the cold, if you have one of the culture, cultural touchstones being having balance in your life, you can say that, but it means nothing if you're not modeling that. Sure. And modeling it is what it is. People take way more away from the culture comes from who you hire, who you fire, and who you reward. 
And you can talk to your blue in your face how we embrace risk-taking here and the way we're going to survive as a company is taking risks. But then you put at the company meeting, you reward your highest paid salesperson. That just sends a totally different message. You got to bring the person up and go, this month we're really recognizing this person who did this thing which didn't work. But they did, they took this risk. They tried something that everyone said wouldn't work. Then everyone sees, wow, that this, they're sincere about this. They give this person more money. They, you know, they don't go, we don't tolerate assholes and then promote the asshole. Yeah. They finally fire him. Even though yeah. this person was key to the company, that sends the message. That's cements culture. Awesome. Yeah, that, that, I mean, it's a great way to say it, you know. Cult, you know, it's, it's who, who you hire, fire, and who you reward. It's a, it's a perfect way to say it because it's so simple, um, but we don't always think that way. So that's no, cool. No. So. Yes, and the, the, the whole have no assholes policy works wonderfully until you have a high-performing asshole who you can't afford not to have. That's when it gets hard. And, yeah. You know, then you go, right. okay, I, if I fire this person, that means I'm doing their job for the next six months while I find someone to replace them. Sure. You, that you just have to do it. So, you know? so when, when, you, when you decide to, to mentor a, a company or CEO or a board, right, or whatever you, however you do that, are you, are you usually a, a seed investor then too? Do you usually say, I want to be a seed investor if I'm going to do it or no, if you like it enough? In fact, in fact exactly the opposite. Okay. My motto is you, my money or my time, but not both. Ah. And there's a, there's a very, very specific reason for that. Again, I'm mentoring early stage companies, you know, the fam, friends and family round, series A, series B, and that's probably as far as it goes for me. And so um, I do take equity in the company, but I take common stock. Mm -hmm. So I'm aligned with the founder. Once you put money in the company, you're no longer aligned because your interests differ from the founder because you have preferred stock and they have common mm -hmm. stock. Sure. When they come to you and say, what do we do? You want to be able to help them think it through without the tinge of, does this affect me differently than it might affect them? And, that's the, and, and that's, the, that's the reason why I think it's so important, actually, to not be an investor necessarily in a company you mentor. And listen, everyone's aligned when things are going great. Yeah. It's things don't go great that you have the misalignment and when it's especially important to know you have someone's back entirely. And listen, I'm not saying that necessarily having the money will taint you, but you don't even want the appearance of that. Sure. Right. I got to at least get out the disclaimer that after a number of years in a company, I will put money in, but that's after <laughs> three or four years of working with someone when it's beyond the point when I'm now beyond that point of approach but at the beginning um never or almost never same thing i won't be a board member right i want i want to be your uh coach i don't want to be your boss uh -huh. and once you're on the board your fiduciary responsibility is not to the founder your fiduciary responsibility is to the company and to the shareholders yeah. and again those are aligned when things are going well, it's when they're not going well that you get out of alignment. All right. Yeah. We so we we have that. Uh, so we, our, in our businesses right now, that technology company I told you about called Site that Robbie came to work with um, a year or so, year and a half ago. Anyway, that company is is a technology technology um, 
uh, we, we, you call real estate technology or a, um, uh, uh, what would you call it? What would you call it, Robbie? Is what the typical framework. So prop tech. So a prop tech company basically. And, and in that, in that business, you know, we've, we've got the biggest potential customers in the, in the world as our, as our customers so far. Now, now we, now is, is Mark still on? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Okay. So in that, in that business, uh, we, we've, we've got all these customers through our existing businesses that are, it's awesome because we pilot these, these products to them and there are, there are our partners in piloting the product and, and, and at the end they buy it. Right. So, so we've done it with, with our biggest customers and, and, uh, and they love it. So, you know, Walmart, um, Home Depot, many of these customers, uh, Prologis and some great, great customers that we had as, as paving customers and all that are using this technology now as their, their number one uh, source when it comes to the things that we do in assessment of their real estate, right? So, so now it's a matter of getting this out. Now, my son took my spot as CEO of a group of companies, and he was the CEO of this company. He's the one that spun it out of our existing companies, and now we got to find a CEO, right? We have to find a CEO now to right. run this company. You know, if they're prop tech focused, that's great, but it's going to have to be somebody that can raise capital too, right? Somebody that can take it to the next level. It's a you know, they're on course to doing anywhere from four million this year to to seventy million this year in revenues, depending on a few things, right? So big difference, big difference. But but it just started a couple of years ago from nothing, and it's a it's a great little business. So now, how do you look? Have you ever had to do that? Look for a CEO that understands a space in some sort, in some way, or just a strong technology person that can get it. Um, that can also you can also raise money with, right? Well, how would you look for something like that if it was you? Yeah, it's really hard. It's a, and it's a long process because you have to have the cultural fit and you also have to ensure that you recognize going in, this person is, is not being high. If you hire someone to do what you want done, if you hire someone to do things the way you would do them or to think the way you would do them, you're not going to find a person who has the attributes you really want. And so the first thing to do is to look within yourself and say, am I prepared to surrender my company to somebody else. Mm, sure. That, and that's the hardest thing of all. Because once you've got that, once you've done that, you've lifted the biggest burden of all. Because believe me, anybody good that you hire is going to come into this situation terrified of, <laughs> am I supposed to be a yes man? Am I just uh, being called CEO, but I'm really just an EOO? Sure. Is this person the executive chairman yeah so and so the person who is stepping out of the way is the one who has the heavy lift they have to make sure they're really prepared to do this and it takes a while so I'll give you the perfect we just recently did that not recently God so after Netflix um, I was uh, a friend of mine uh, who I've known a long time wanted to start a company and he was he's a tech guy He's an engineer, he's a brilliant engineer, had an idea, because I want to start this company. And I go, great, uh, you're, you're a genius. I'm sure the product's amazing. And he goes, it's different. I want to be the CEO. And I said, oh, I don't know. You sure you want to be the CEO? Because he, he's been, he's, he was my, you know, close to my age. And so as an engineer, he, of course, has seen how stupid CEOs are. And how, <laughs> how absurd all the decisions they make are. And of course he goes, well, I can do this better. Um, and of course, so, and he goes, but I need help. Will you mentor me? And so we began this process and I, I again ended up going to work for this company 
pretty cl closer to full time than I have in a long time. Um, doing pretty much, I was, uh, my title was ABC, which was anything but coding. <laughs> so as I was kind of helping this guy be the CEO. And of course, what happened is after about a year, he goes, this is the worst job in the world. Why would anybody want to be the CEO? Because none of the answers are black and white. Everything is abstract. You always upset people no matter what you do or say. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Welcome. Anyway, so we go, let's find you somebody to take this company in the right place. And it, we did. It took us, the first thing was getting my friend over this hump of uh, recognizing it's your company, but you're going to have to surrender it to someone else's leadership. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was finding someone who, whose vision aligned with ours. And that's what most of the uh, dating period was about, was finding someone who really saw the future in the same way that we did. So we were comfortable surrendering the path that this person chose to take us there might be different than the way we would have done it, but he's taking it to a place we wanted it to be. I'm sorry, I'll keep rambling here again. The caffeine's diminishing. No, that's okay. That's all right. What, what, you know, I live in Santa Cruz, California, uh, which is over the mountains from Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Every single person, you know, 40,000 people a day drive over the Santa Cruz mountains to commute to work in Silicon Valley. So all of us who live here, who have done that, always go, God, it'd be great to have a company here in Santa Cruz. And so one of the visions that we had for the company early on was, this is going to be a Santa Cruz company. And having sure. tried and failed with Netflix to keep it as a Santa Cruz company, I was prepared for the battle I was going to be waging. Um, and so that was, for example, one of the things we were looking at from the CEO. Not somebody that we could say, here's the things you have to do. But when one day, as we're talking to one of the people we were thinking about for leading the company, and he spontaneously says, gosh, it'd be so great if we could keep this company in Santa Cruz. The little light old. goes off and you go, huh. I mean, that's just one of many things. But again, because then you know they're going to do it differently than you, but at least they're aligned in their vision. Sure. So, so culture and vision, of course, you, you know, culture, they got aligned pretty well with, with, with that founder probably and the, and, and the majority stockholder probably. Right. And then and vision wise, vision wise, you know, vision aligned, but, but they have to have the freedom if they're going to be good, they're going to be a great CEO. They have to have the freedom to pivot and they have to have the freedom to, to expound upon that vision probably. Right. And, and if, and, and if you're lucky, come up with things that you never dreamed of. Right. I mean, the company that I'm talking about is called Looker, Looker Data. Uh -huh. And uh, this person we brought in, Frank Ben is his name, took it in a, in a direction that Lloyd Tab and I never envisioned, mm. which is um, he saw something coming and he steered the company. And Lloyd and I saw this as being much more of a self-serve software company, like a Zoom or a, you know, where you, uh -huh. where, but in Ted, this ended up being a SaaS company with people wearing suits and carrying briefcases and telesales and, <laughs> and but boy, was that the right call. Um, and you know, we sold, we, that, that we sold that company just uh, uh, six months ago to Google for $2.6 billion. So nice. uh, thank goodness for uh, Frank Bien. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and then when you, when you look at that, okay, that, that's, that CEO where he took it and everything else. I mean, was he, uh, 
was he an example of somebody you could raise money because of his past? Uh, or was he you know, somebody that had to prove, just prove himself to raise money uh, to, to the investors? No, he had to prove himself. And what was interesting is this was his first CEO gig. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that was a plus and a minus. The minus, of course, was unproven, untried in that role. The, the plus is driven. As you probably have seen from your mentors, the best entrepreneurs have something, they have something which drives them, something deep psychological that means yeah. I will not let this fail. And it could be something as simple, Oedipal, I got to prove it to their parents or their father. Yeah. It could also be something they've seen. It could be that they are supporting people. Or, and, but it's wonderful sometimes to have someone with this deep motivation to, I'm going to make this happen at any cost, because that fundamentally is a key attribute of a successful founder. And how about, how about uh, you know, I look at, you know, the, the successful CEOs that I've been around and, and some on our team and, and, and others that I've, I've been friends with, right? Not only are they, they driven and not only do they have vision, but they also have a, a, a strength in, in either, either understanding the, the metrics and the execution or uh, they know how to hire the right people. But, you know, when, when you can have both sides of the brain, what an advantage. And not many people do, right? But I, I've got, you know, one of our CEOs is amazing when it comes to uh, his vision, his, his ability to inspire everybody around him to be better than they would be without him, right? Which I look, I look at as a real mark of a leader, right? And then on top of that, he's an engineer, right? So he's a civil engineer as well uh, with an MBA. But this guy, not only can he inspire, not only does he have this crazy vision, but he also has this ability to measure and, and constantly have the metrics in place so that everybody on his team understands what a good day and a bad day is, right? They, they, they always understand what a good day and a bad day is, whether it's that person that just started a month ago or the person that's, that's, a, that's a VP in his team. I mean, that, the combination of those two things aren't often found. But when I see somebody that's a, just exceptional CEO, they get both of those things really, really well. I don't know if you've, you've seen that as well. But. No, it's true. It's, it, it, again, you know, you can't, it's such a personal thing. People take their skills and they mold them to the problem. And if it was one size fits all, it would be so easy. Yeah. It's not. And it's, it's by no means certain either. And of course, this by the very nature of the fact that you have a collection of companies puts you in a different situation than someone who is a sole individual company. Because mm -hmm. you can recognize you can cover certain weaknesses uh, and that you're actually hiring for the things you can't do necessarily looking for the entire package. So and I, and I've, and I've actually learned, Mark, because I've got so many weaknesses that I got to cover. <laughs> I, 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 I'm a crazy visionary, right? And, and not even, probably not even that good. I think I'm kind of good at it, but I'm probably not even that good if you looked at the, the things I envision, right? But, but I'm, I, I like strategy until it's in place and I want somebody else to take that, right? I like metrics. But I don't want to measure, and I don't want to. I don't want to hold people accountable, right? So, yeah, yeah. so for me, I've got so many weaknesses. And I've been filling the voids of weakness to hire good people to take on my weaknesses, and and uh, and it's worked out okay. I mean, I've had plenty of losses, but it works out. Uh, so again, when when some, I'm, I'm always enamored by somebody that gets both sides of the coin that, that can actually get all those things done, right? So it's fun. But but it's also why, at least in Silicon Valley, the most stable configuration for a startup is two people. Because you have people together create a complete um, person. Sure. And, and that's a really, like for just, you know, even Reed Hastings and I, 
uh, very, very different skill sets, but extremely complementary skill sets. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the success of Netflix comes from the fact that the two of us were there uh, together. So, yes, uh, yes. So I, I'd like to finish up with a couple of things. Uh, sure. uh, number one, um, you know, I, I believe that my uh, my success and the success of people like us, right, it, it is you, you can't you, you couldn't do it as as well in other countries. And I'm always proud to be an American and, and proud of this this free enterprise system we have. Um, I, I've traveled the world more in the last 15 years in my life, and 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 to kind of look at these things that you say these in these different countries to find out you know why we have so much innovation and why we have all this 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 this. Uh, uh, these these great startups that they create, that solve so many problems compared to most countries, and I, I I've learned those lessons. Um, uh, what, what's your 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 opinion? Have you traveled around the world? Do you, uh, have you have you have you ever spoke on that issue of uh, free enterprise and the values of the free enterprise system? Listen, I I travel a ton, uh, especially in the last fifteen years, where I. Uh, I mean, I've been all over the world um, more than I ever expected to do. And I have kind of, I'm of two minds about it. On one hand, I share with you the huge value of being in the United States. You know, when I talk about luck, as I'm extremely lucky to have been born here. I was lucky to have born into the household that I was, to get the education that I got. I'm so lucky to have been gotten the start here in the United States. Yeah. The other side, though, is the world is changing, especially the internet, the effect the internet is having, mm. which is that if people fall into the trap of thinking that the rest of the world is incapable of this or unable to do this, they haven't traveled enough. Uh. You just need to go to uh, other countries to see how mass transportation should work and you'll start stop being quite so proud of us. You should look at their airports. Uh, you'll you look at their education systems. Look at their healthcare systems. Um, there's a look at the speed. Go to Hong Kong and see the not now, but see the speed of the internet there. I mean, yeah, it makes a lot to learn. Wow, we are are we can we have to be proud, but we can't let pride lead to complacency. Yes, exactly. Uh, and with the internet comes the ability for anybody. The next, the, the, one of the things that took down uh, Blockbuster partly was the fact the two guys coming after them had zero experience in the video business. Uh, we didn't look anything like Blockbuster. Yeah. And the next person coming after your business, Gary, probably is in school, is still in school. Uh, they probably are in India someplace. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're in Vietnam. Maybe they're in Norway. The, uh, the world that you have some advantages in the fact that you're the, the businesses you describe as dirty businesses are a little bit less prone to disruption, but be careful no, I agree. in the tech side. So, I agree. And, and, and two things I say, differentiate or die and, and complacency will kill all good things, right? I mean, whether it's your, your, our relationships with our, 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 our best friend, our wives, or, or, or our girlfriend's wives, right? Or, or our kids, right? Our family and friends. I mean, complacency kills all good things in business yep. as well. Yep. So okay, lastly, eventually I want to talk to you someday. I'd love you to look at uh, this company's site and tell me what you think of it. And, and, and loved you, I'd love you to look at it and see if uh, you, you want to help us mentor the next uh, CEO that we, that we bring in there. Because it's, it's a company that will be, I believe it, it, it could, could be a unicorn. I really believe it could be. And, and 
the big thing to say, but I, but I, I really think it can be, and it, I, I think it should be, but it's a matter of putting the right people in place. Awesome. Robbie, any other, any other takeaways, Robbie? Yeah. So takeaways, uh, I think the big one early in the conversation was encourage risk and that can be applied to business, to parenting, uh, just in the general sense of life. Uh, and don't be afraid of the perfect, uh, be okay with the good and make sure that you, the sub minimal viable product is what you lead with as opposed to trying to make that minimum viable product and potentially spending too much money. Uh, pursue and discover your passions. Uh, don't let them come to you. You need to be a curious thinker uh, and have a growth mindset and go out and find those. Uh, and you need to lead and mentor through shared experiences as opposed to uh, a direct demand or statement in terms of how to move the vision towards the future. Uh, it, a cool part to me is I'm a big believer in culture and I really love the idea of the, the Tuesday date night that you brought up. And I think it's an absolute fact that you need to act in which the way that you want the culture to actually operate and not just say that. Um, and the last thing is uh, ultimately be willing to be yourself. Uh, and I think inherently, if you have the right culture and values internally, I think externally, you'll lead to a lot more success. Awesome. Good job. Good job, Robbie. Mark, you're awesome, buddy. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Good luck with Thank everything. You. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Bye-bye. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man We're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans then I became the CEO man.